You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. First Samuel chapter 16, we continue our journey through this book of Samuel. No, human eyesight is a marvelous thing. It's a marvelous work of the Lord's engineering, biological engineering. The human eye has a lot of different components to it. Got the cornea, it's got the pupil, the iris, the lens, cones and, and rods and the retina. All of these different parts come together to convert light that comes into our eye into electrical signals that go into our brain for processing so that we can see the world around us. It's fascinating. That sight, though, is our primary sense. It's foundational to the way that we interact with the world around us. So much so that human beings have applied their creativity, their imagination, their engineering to try to construct technologies that help us to see even better. We create things like, and we design things like microscopes, that we can see tiny little things. We construct telescopes to see things that are far away. We create glasses, some of you are wearing them now, to help us see blurry things. We develop virtual reality goggles to help us see imaginary things. We utilize x-rays to see through things. And yet, despite the complex creation that God gave us of the eye and all our technological advancements to enhance the eye, Our sight is still limited, isn't it? William Shakespeare might be correct when he said that the eyes are the window to the soul. And that may be true, but that glass is opaque. It is clouded. We are unable to see into the human heart. Jeremiah wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so the reality of our eyesight is that we might be able to do a cardiac CT scan, but we cannot discern the motives and the desires of the heart. And so we lean on our human sight often while ignoring its limitations. And because we are so reliant on the visual, we all too easily as human creatures make judgments based on appearances. And so we come to 1 Samuel 16, where we discover that the Lord does not see as we see. We look at things one way, the Lord sees a different way. Israel asked for a king, and God gave them the king that they asked for, a tall and handsome man named Saul. And though Saul might have been outwardly impressive in in his appearance and even even successful in terms of his career achievements and providing military leadership to Israel, we saw in the last week that he blatantly disobeyed the Lord. And thus he's a failure. So the Lord rejects Saul as king. And in Saul, the Lord gave Israel the king they asked for according to the external standards of visual appearance that mattered to Israel. They relied on the desire of the eyes, as John will write in his epistle. They wanted a king like all the nations. But now, with Saul having been rejected by the Lord, the Lord gets his turn. 
the Lord will choose a king according to his standards, according to his vision. Let's begin reading in chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel went into a time of mourning after Saul's rejection as king. Even the Lord, as we saw last chapter, grieved over Saul's sin and his failure leading to his rejection. So we can understand, can't we, Samuel's heartache that he feels at the start of this chapter. He led the people as God's judge for many decades with complete faithfulness, even led over his own revival. And only for the Lord, uh, only for the people to end up rejecting the Lord's kingship, rejecting Samuel, and wanting to have a king like all the nations. And though Samuel invested his blood, sweat, and tears into Saul, into this young man, the man ended up becoming a disappointment. King Saul is currently undoing old Samuel's legacy. Samuel's military victory is now being reversed as the Philistines encroach yet again back on Israel's territory. And now Samuel realizes that Israel's future is connected to their king, Saul, whom the Lord had just rejected. So Samuel's worried about Israel's future. Samuel had this sort of fatherly relationship with Saul, and he lamented in his disappointment. And perhaps Samuel even wrestled with the sort of thoughts that plague grief-stricken parents. Where did I go wrong? Did I fail, Saul? Should I have done anything differently? And what will happen next for Israel? Will the nation now collapse into spectacular spiritual decline and ruin and receive God's judgment forever? Samuel is distraught. But Samuel does not see as the Lord sees. Samuel, like us, has a very limited perspective on things because Samuel, like us, can often just judged by the present. He can only evaluate the present. And presently, from Samuel's vantage point, everything looks bad. Everything looks dire. But we have to be careful though, don't we? We have to be careful not to judge the difficulties of the present from our finite perspective. We do not have the providential eye of God. Only the Lord sees the flow of history outside of the bounds of time. And just when Samuel is most stricken by sorrow and grief, it is there in Samuel's heartache that the Lord is preparing to choose his next king, a king that will forever shape redemptive history. You know, we can all find ourselves in seasons of grief, can't we? Perhaps you're in one today. Grief can be prompted by the death of a loved one or perhaps the death of hopes and dreams. Our disappointments are their own sort of death aren't they? And in the cloud of that grief, we can find it easy to stay paralyzed in that anguish like Samuel is here. 
We, we take relief from our present troubles by wallowing in despair, all the while forgetting that the Lord is now at work for the future. Grief and sorrow have their place. The Lord did the same after Samuel's rejection, after Saul's rejection, mourned and grieved over Saul's failure. But Samuel has now allowed his suffering to cloud his sight. He could not yet see that the Lord was on the move. The sorrows of the past were now paving a way for a joyous future. The Lord instructs Samuel, stop it. (laughs) Stop grieving. Why are you grieving over Saul? And so if the Lord had rejected Saul, Samuel, why are you still upset about it? This is the Lord's will. Why are you still grieving over what has happened? Now is the time for action. It was the Lord's will. And so he summons Samuel, take your horn, fill it up with oil yet again, go to Bethlehem to visit the household of Jesse. It's time for me, Samuel. It's time for the Lord to select the new king. and He will pick Israel's future king, its new king from among the sons of Jesse. You see, even though the Lord selected Saul, 1 Samuel repeatedly reminds us over these last few chapters that Saul was the king Israel asked for. In fact, it's in his name. Saul means asked for. So I hope you paid attention to the pronouns these last few chapters and catch the significance of what's taking place here in chapter 16. When the people first requested a king back in chapter 8, verse 5, they said, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And the Lord tells Samuel in chapter 8, obey their voice and make them a king. And then when the monarchy is established, Samuel tells the people, and now behold the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for. The Lord retained his sovereign prerogative to select Saul. But the text presents Saul over and over again as this is Israel's king. This is the king they wanted. Saul appealed to all that sort of visual senses. He looked impressive. He matched all the criteria that they wanted, this visibly imposing king, head and shoulders above the rest, their own Goliath in a way that they can present before the nations. Saul matched all that criteria. But now that Saul's failure led to God's rejection of him, the Lord gets his turn. The Lord gets to pick his king. Notice the pronoun change in verse one. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. The Lord will now select his king, a king for myself from among Jesse's sons. Samuel initially hesitates to go and go to Bethlehem. And he probably, he's in retirement now. He doesn't want to get engaged in his old age in this sort of king business again. He's old, he's tired, he's exhausted, he's grieving. And so he protests, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Traveling from Ramah to Bethlehem required Samuel to pass through Gibeah, which was Saul's headquarters. At this point, the entire nation had heard of the rumblings of the following out between Saul and Samuel. And if Saul gets wind that Samuel is passing through his town to go to Bethlehem to anoint a new king, Saul wouldn't hesitate to execute Samuel for treason. So the cowardly man hiding in the baggage has now become so possessive and protective of his authority and his kingship. Power corrupts, doesn't it? So the Lord instructs Samuel 
to use the guise of a sacrifice to conceal his true intentions for going to Bethlehem. The concealment of Samuel's true purpose is the Lord's idea. This is the first of several times we'll see in Samuel where David and his allies use this tactic of concealment in their struggle with Saul. While they don't outright lie, they do, as Jesus tells us, to act wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So this tactic of concealment was the Lord's urging of Samuel to use. And Samuel is to invite Jesse and his sons, and the Lord there under this sacrifice will confirm to Samuel the identity of this next king. So Samuel stops wallowing, and he gets up, and he starts going to Bethlehem to obey the word of the Lord. Let's keep reading in verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. It's interesting, as Samuel enters into Bethlehem, the elders of the city get really, really nervous. Is that Samuel? <laughs> is, that, is that who's coming over the horizon? What is he doing here? What is he doing in these parts, in this little town of Bethlehem? Is he here to, to start trouble, to instigate conflict? Is he trying to get us embroiled, to get us to join his side against Saul? What is going on here? And then if Saul hears that we're, we're aiding and abetting Samuel into our town, is, is Saul going to bring the army of Israel down and crush us? You can see here, reading between the lines of the, the heightened political tensions are running high. And so the elders welcome Samuel, but with trembling. What are you doing here? Do you come peaceably, is what they ask. And Samuel assures them, I'm here peaceably, right? I come in peace to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And I'm sure the elders probably wondered, well, why are you doing that in Bethlehem? Why Bethlehem of all places? Have you come down to make a sacrifice? But they don't ask too many questions because ignorance is safer on their part. Pleading the fifth is an option for them and they want to take it. So Samuel prepares the sacrifice and he consecrates Jesse's family and his sons. And the time has now come to anoint the new king of Israel. And so I'm sure at the sacrifice, Samuel is darting his eyes around, looking at all who are there. And he's sizing up with his eyes, each of Jesse's sons, which, which man looks, looks like he would be the king that God would choose. But the Lord does not see as we see. Samuel's vision is like ours. It is not reliable. Let's keep reading. Verse six, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. As Samuel starts to look at all of Jesse's sons, there's one guy that quite quickly catches his eye, Eliab. This man looked like a king. 
He looks like a Heisman Trophy winner. He's got all the accolades, right? So when Samuel sets his eyes on him, he thinks, this is the sort of guy. This must be the Lord's anointed. He looks like the king. But the Lord is quick to interject and correct Samuel because Samuel had just fallen into the same trap that Israel did, same trap that we fall into by looking at the physical impressiveness of the man. Because if it wasn't for the Lord intervening, Samuel would have just anointed Saul 2.0. While Eliab might have been impressive, he had an impressive resume. He had public prestige. He had a confident demeanor. He wasn't socially awkward. He had these sorts of rugged good looks about him. The Lord did not choose based on any of those external criteria. Look at what the Lord says. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. I think verse seven here is the key to understanding first and second Samuel, if not all the Bible. The Lord does not operate according to the assessment of our feeble eyes, but his omniscient penetrating gaze. You may consider yourself a discerning person, the sort of person that can judge whether one is of good character or not. And perhaps You pride yourself on being able to spot a hypocrite or a phony when you meet one. But our assessment is nothing but an educated guess at best. Our eyes dupe us. We have difficulty discerning the intentions of our own hearts. How presumptuous is it to think that we can judge the heart of another? Like Israel and Saul, our eyes gravitate toward what is impressive, what is alluring. If you doubt that, Ask a social media influencer what people want to see. Or ask a journalist what sort of headlines grabs the most clicks online. Ask a Hollywood producer what sells. Indeed, the whole media engine of our country has been tuned to monetize our roaming eyes looking for something or someone to impress us. The glitz and glamour of the visual has deceived us all. But the Lord refuses to operate based on the faddish allurements of the culture that entice us. The gospel intentionally subverts our expectations. Paul writes to Corinth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The gospel is subversive. It subverts our expectations. And so the kingdom of God works fundamentally different than every other kingdom on earth. (laughs) Israel's king, its first king, was selected with the measuring rod of the nations. But now, as God selects the next king, he uses his measuring rod to choose the king that he has provided for himself. While the rulers of the Gentiles relish their authority, greatness in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, comes through humble service, the washing of feet. When it comes to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, it belongs to the poor in spirit. And if the Lord in his all-knowing gaze can see through the facade that we project to the world, he can see down to the very workings and motives of the hearts, including yours. And what does the Lord see? What does the Lord see? 
Perhaps you have everyone fooled around you. And you've become quite skilled, as we all have become over these last few years, of concocting online or in person a rather impressive reputation before the world. But what repute do you have before the man of no reputation? If the Lord judges by the heart, then every one of us is in trouble because the Lord doesn't hesitate from his word to give us his assessment of our hearts. There is no one righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. So you may be able to fool your followers online. You might be able to fool your friends, your family, even your pastors and your church. But you cannot fool the God who looks on the heart and sees. The Lord uses his word to do this. His word exposes who we really are. And none of us, the scriptures say, are hidden from his sight. Because before the Lord's word and his omniscient gaze, Hebrews says that we are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts. And with our hearts exposed to the Lord's gaze, what do we do? What do we do in that exposure, that vulnerability? but we trust in the Lord's provided king because the same gaze that exposes our condemnation and judgment also reveals the Lord's deliverer and his savior king. And so Samuel learns the Lord's lesson and he moves on from Eliab and continues on through Jesse's sons. The Lord says, no, this isn't him. Eventually all of Jesse's sons pass before Samuel and none of them are the man that the Lord had chosen to be king. Where is God's king? Where is the one that the Lord had prepared for himself? Let's keep reading in verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. After all the boys are rejected, (laughs) Samuel looks around a little confused. What is going on here? The Lord said that his king that he provided for himself was in this house of Jesse, but the Lord thus far has rejected all the men present, all the sons. So Samuel inquires, as you might expect him to, Jesse, is is this it? Is this all your boys? Is this everyone? Is this all your sons? And Jesse informs Samuel, yeah, there's there's one more. There's the youngest, the littlest, but he's, he's out tending the sheep. David seems to be an afterthought. Too young. Too insignificant to even be invited to an important festival with Samuel. He's just a boy tending the sheep while we devote ourselves to spiritual matters, Jesse says and thinks. David doesn't even receive an invitation to this special meeting with the prophet Samuel. And once Samuel is told that the boy is missing, he stops everything and he says, no, you go and get that boy immediately. Bring him here. Nobody sits down. Nobody rests until he gets here now. And when David is brought in, we're given a description of his appearance. He was a handsome boy, ruddy with beautiful eyes. David wasn't ugly, but he was a small boy whom everyone overlooked. 
He did not have the stature or the appearance of his brothers. And even though David was handsome, it comes quite clear from the text that he was chosen to be king by the Lord, not because of his appearance, but because of the Lord's assessment of his heart. That's the criteria the Lord was using in picking his king. Upon seeing David, the Lord tells Samuel, this is him. And so Samuel takes the horn, takes the oil and anoint David, makes him Christ, makes him the anointed one. It's not until verse 13 that we are introduced into the name of this king. The narrator holds on to it for as long as possible. And its name is revealed to be David. And we are told significantly in this text that from that day forward, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. With his anointing as king, the Lord's strength fills David with the leadership of God's people. We've talked previously in the text about the spirits rushing earlier on in Samuel. It's significant in this book. What is going on here? Well, the phrase first occurs in Judges, you'll remember, talking about Samson's empowerment as a judge to have supernatural strength. And the spirit rushed upon Saul when he was first anointed, and he began to prophesy And then later, the Spirit of God had to rush upon Saul again to compel him to action, and he began to, in righteous anger, raise an army to lead Israel to military victory. But as we'll soon see as the chapter gets into, the the Spirit of the Lord departs from Saul as it rushes upon David. Because as the Lord has rejected Saul as king, he removes his provision of his strength and presence. Now, the Lord's presence and power are on David. And unlike Saul, the rushing of God's spirit on David will be from that day forward. That day forward, the spirit of the Lord will not leave the king God has chosen for himself. And so as the spirit of the Lord rushes upon David, he departs from Saul. Let's let's read this next section here in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul (coughs) in a harmful spirit, from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let us Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. But Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor and a man of war, prudent in speech and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David to his son, but by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. The spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. Remember, the spirit of the Lord in 1 Samuel signifies God's presence and strength for his appointed leader for his people. This passage does not refer to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit has has given us as Christians. 
The sealing of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is a permanent seal. It is a divine down payment on our secure salvation in Christ Jesus. By God's grace, the Holy Spirit cannot be taken away from us, nor would the Lord ever consider removing it. But here, the Spirit's departure signifies a change of the baton, the change of the monarchy. As the Spirit's departure signifies that God's presence, God's strength, God's blessing is no longer with Saul and with his kingdom. Saul is not his chosen leader anymore. The Spirit has now rushed upon David as God's chosen king. And in the vacuum of the Lord's favor, a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented Saul, we're told. Now, in some translations, you will see this translated as an evil spirit from the Lord, which tends to raise a lot of questions. Did the Lord send a demon to torment Saul? Some think so. I'm less inclined to think so. Understanding this phrase in English and translating it is, is very difficult and challenging. I believe the ESV, the English Standard Version, rightly uses the word harmful here in order to prevent us from misinterpreting the passage and thinking that the Lord is committing an evil against Saul. That's not the case. The Lord doesn't do evil. And to accuse him of doing evil is blasphemy. So in addition, the word spirit in Hebrew can refer to spiritual beings like the spirit of the Lord, but can also refer to a disposition or a mood, as we've even seen in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 15. So one commentator proposes probably a better translation of the Hebrew here is suggesting a spirit of evil or a spirit of disaster upon Saul. So the language of spirit is emphasized here in the text because the, the author of Samuel is drawing this contrast between Saul and David. Saul's harmful spirit is simply the description of the Lord's hand now being against Saul. And Saul, who is under the affliction of the Lord, Saul's mental and emotional state begins to spiral into a sort of mania. Saul's change of mental state is noticed by the servants. His servants see it. And they recommend, Saul, go recruit a musician to help soothe your troubled soul. Saul, you need some music therapy. So, so Saul instructs his servants to, in verse 13, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. With great irony, the man they provide for Saul is the man that the Lord provided for himself as king. And so they go and they get David and he comes into Saul's house and David enters into Saul's house as a sort of newly adopted son and soon to be son-in-law, right? Just as Samuel was brought into the house of Eli, notice the parallels here. Saul immediately takes to David. He loves him. Verse 21, Saul loved him greatly and he elevates David to this position of prestige as his armor bearer, carrying around the armor of the king. Notice the irony there as well. So with tragedy, we know that Saul's opinion of David is going to change rather quickly. He will go from loving him as a son to hunting him down in jealousy. And as David plays the lyre, the psalmist of Israel soothes his troubled soul, refreshing Saul with the melody. And so it is that the rejected king of Israel receives relief from God's anointed king. David is not a threat to Saul. We'll see that over and over again throughout this book. David poses no threat to Saul whatsoever. David is presented even here, though know, Saul can't see it. David is but a means of grace to relieve his troubled soul. 
but it won't take long before Saul sees David no longer as a son, no longer as a friend, no longer as a consular, but as a rival, as an enemy, as a nuisance that needs to be rejected. Nevertheless, the Lord's hand is now against Saul. This is a decisive turning point. The Lord's spirit is now with David. And so the blessing of the Lord will be given to David, not to Saul. And the conflict between the two will soon begin to ensue. But through the twists and turns of David's challenges to come, we see that the Lord's spirit will strengthen him and eventually bring his king to the throne. Samuel overlooked David. Jesse overlooked David. Saul overlooks David. But in the wisdom of God, in the wisdom of God, the Lord sees what we cannot see. The Lord has chosen David to be his king. And through David, bless the entire world. Now, David will not be a perfect king. (laughs) Not in the slightest. He may be a man after God's own heart, And he may be Saul's neighbor who is better than King Saul. But David, as we continue to read, particularly in 2 Samuel, falls woefully short of perfection. He sins in serious ways, therefore disqualifying him as the king we need to fix our hearts. Being interesting, as you continue to read 1 Samuel, there's this budding expectation that perhaps David is the one promised to the Lord who will crush the head of the serpent. And we keep reading 1 Samuel and we think, and this is it, this is it. It's finally happening only for Bathsheba to collide into David. David thus sinned against the Lord. And all of our hopes are dashed. David is God's king, but he is not the promised king that we need. Nevertheless, David is God's king and the king through which the Lord will bring his son into the world to be the forever king to rescue us out of sin. Consider David's son, yet David's Lord. Jesus, of the house and lineage of David, is the king that all of Israel overlooked. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. If we went online and read every profile of every man in Israel in the first century, nobody would have picked Jesus to be the king. There was nothing attractive about him. Nothing impressive, nothing majestic about him. He was but a poor carpenter from Nazareth. He was a homeless, self-professed rabbi roaming around the countryside without the accreditation of the Pharisees. There was no radiant glow upon his head that we see in artwork. Only filthy, dirty feet and calloused, well-worn hands. But yet Jesus was God's king. He was the one that God had sent to fulfill his promises to Israel, to redeem sinners from the judgment their wicked hearts deserved. And though the world rejected Jesus, and though they despised Jesus, they saw him wrongly. They could not see as God sees. Jesus might not have looked like a king, but we know through the New Testament that he is the shoot that came from the stump of Jesse. He is the one whom Isaiah predicted that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Jesus is the spirit-filled king Isaiah prophesied about. But yet he was the cornerstone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. How do you 
assess Jesus this morning? How might you size him up? Do you see him as God sees him? Or do you see him as the world sees him? Do you believe that Jesus is the eternal son of God? That he is the savior of sinners? That he is the king who is enthroned forever? Or do you despise him as a fool? Do you reckon him but an ordinary man? Do you reject his words and his teaching? Do you spurn his rule and his authority? If you assess Jesus with your own eyes, you will find nothing attractive about Jesus. But the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But if you look on Jesus with the eyes of faith, the eyes opened up by the spirit of God, eyes divinely tuned to behold true beauty, you will find in Jesus a radiant, majestic, and worthy king. You will see him as God sees him, a king who is fierce in his judgments, but who is full of compassion for those who humbly come to him for rescue and help. I pray that the Lord gives all of us this morning eyes to see Jesus this morning. Not in your visual worldly assessment of him, but I pray that as the Lord helps you to see the actual state of your own heart filled with sin and evil, that he would at the same time enable you to see the beauty and splendor of Jesus. And then as you do, that you would see rightly, see reality for what it is as God sees it, and that you would humble yourself before the Lord, that you would turn from your sin, and that you would put your faith in Jesus Christ, that you would look to him in faith, trusting that Jesus is the king. He is my king. He is God's king who has laid down his life for a sinner like me. That Jesus is the one promised who has come to serve me and who endures the shame of the cross to provide atonement for my sins. By faith in Jesus, God's king, we receive his righteousness given to us. The only way to deal with the Lord's assessment of our hearts, the only way to deal with our condemnation before God who is just and who is judge is to put on, to receive by faith Jesus's righteousness given to us. The only way to deal with our wicked hearts is to submit to God's king, to receive his cleansing, be cloaked in his righteousness. So what do you see this morning? Where is your eyesight? I pray you see your sin and shame for what it is. And I pray that you in that same disjunction, in that humiliation, see the radiant splendor of Christ as God's king. And I pray that that vision of this beauty, of Jesus's beauty and glory would compel you this morning to bend your knee to him in repentance and faith. Look and see God's chosen king this morning. Your eyes might be quite poor. Your lenses might be getting thicker and thicker as you age. But though physical vision may be lost, blessed are those who have the spiritual sight to recognize the identity of God's king. In the words of Jesus, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would give us this spiritual sight 
to see you, your king, to see Jesus and all of his majesty and power and glory. Lord, we confess that we so easily rely on our natural vision, that which is external. That's what appeals to our senses. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to not rely on our natural sight, but to come before you humbly and implore you for spiritual sight, that we would see the king that you had raised up, that we would recognize Jesus for who he is as your chosen king, as the deliverer of mankind. Would I pray, Lord, this morning that those who see their sin, perhaps for the first time with clarity in a way that they had never experienced before, that, Lord, you would humble them, that you would break them in their sin, and, Lord, that you would lead them to see Jesus as an all-compassionate and sufficient Savior of our souls. Would I pray that they would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. Lord, I do pray for those of us who have this spiritual sight, that we have seen who Jesus really is. We have recognized him by faith that he is your king. Lord, I pray that as we grow in grace, that he becomes increasingly more captivating to our souls, or that we would see his radiance and glory with increasing clarity as we grow in holiness and grace. Lord Jesus, captivate our, our eyes, captivate our hearts, with your glory and your majesty. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.